So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first one in the New Testament. We're in about six chapters, and that finds us in the middle of Jesus' mountain message, his what some people call the Sermon on the Mountain, and Jesus teaches about prayer in the middle of that sermon in the sixth chapter, beginning at the ninth verse. So this is our text for this morning. This, then, is how you should pray, Jesus said. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The late Ozzie Nelson told this story about his son, Ricky. He said, when Ricky was young, he begged me to let his friend Walter come over and spend the the whole weekend. And after much persistence, I finally gave in. The day Walter came over, I decided to leave work early so that I could spend some time with him. We went into the backyard and started throwing the football around. I thought I was pretty good at it. And Ricky said, you're great, Dad. Walter said, Mr. Nelson, you're pretty good, but you're not as good as my father. When dinner came, I carved the roast with thin, even slices. Look at those nice slices, I bragged. You carved the roast good, Walter said. But you should see my father do it. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't do anything as well as this kid's father. At bedtime, I decided to tell one of my best bedtime stories. The eyes were literally popping out of their heads. That's a pretty good story, Mr. Nelson, but my father is one of the best storytellers ever. It continued for the entire next day. I started to dislike a man I had never even met. I couldn't wait for Walter's mom to come in and pick him up so that I could find out more about this super father. When she came to the door, I said, Hi, I am delighted to meet you. How was Walter, she asked. He was great, I said. But I would sure like to meet your husband. He must be something else. Oh, no, she said. I am so sorry. Did he talk about his father a lot? Walter was was three years old when his father was killed at Pearl Harbor. He's always talking about his father. If only... We were more like Walter. The disciples came to Jesus and asked Jesus if he would teach them how they could pray. Now, please understand, these disciples are not novices when it comes to praying. As Jews, they had been 
growing up and praying since they could begin to talk. It was not their unfamiliarity with prayer that prompted them to ask the question. It was that they noticed that Jesus was praying differently than they had been taught. They noticed that he prayed with a greater familiarity with God than they had ever witnessed before. His prayers were, well, they were more like conversations than just pleas and petitions. He not only talked, he paused to listen. And he prayed like what he said and what he heard actually impacted his daily living. Jesus would say to them in John 5, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees and hears from his father. Jesus answers their request to teach them how to pray by actually praying with them. A prayer that you and I know as the Lord's prayer, but a prayer that would be, I think, better defined if it were titled the disciples' prayer. Jesus offers this short and simple pattern for our praying, a pattern that is designed for a myriad of circumstances and situations. Jesus offers this profound prayer. And if we understand and embrace its truths, it becomes a powerful prayer. This prayer is one of the greatest gifts that Jesus has given to his church, to you and to me. The first line, just the first line, puts the basics of life into perspective for us. So last week, you may remember, we talked about remembering who God is and as a result, also remembering who we are. And this morning, we're also reminded of the importance of both of those realities, plus also the need to remember who we are together and who we are in his world. So remember who God was, who God is, who God longs to be in our heart and in our life. The name Jesus uses for God as he teaches them to pray would have been absolutely scandalous in the first century to these listeners. This is not the traditional Hebrew way of addressing God. The Jews normally spoke Aramaic in that day and age, would pray in Hebrew, sort of like my grandfather, who mostly spoke English, would pray in Dutch. Jews and Muslims and many other faiths have a separate sacred language that they use. So the scriptures are are read and the prayers are prayed publicly in this sacred language. Jesus took the common address that Hebrews most often used, for example, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Lord God, King of the universe, and he set it aside for a simple, common, ordinary word that children used to call their father and indicated that the words that you and I offer in prayer are to be simple and sincere. Christianity does not have a sacred language. 
an often overlooked fact that has enormous implications. Because you see, if there is no sacred language, then there is no sacred culture that is attached to it. There is no one divine language with which we need to address our God. God speaks Dutch, and he speaks Spanish, and he speaks English, and he speaks Chinese. He speaks every other language available in this world. And he listens to those who pray in whatever language they pray. By using the Aramaic in this context to address his God, Jesus opened the door to the New Testament being written in Greek, in the language of the day, instead of in Hebrew. And subsequently, the scriptures have been translated into almost every language. If the word can become flesh, that is, if it can be translated from divine to human, it can also be translated into cultures and into people groups and into languages. And today, Christianity is a multicultural, multi-language, worldwide church of Christ that numbers over two billion people. Jesus, in this prayer, focuses on God's presence, seeking God's presence through the language of one's heart. You see, Christianity is not a conformity faith. It does not say that everyone has to do exactly the same thing in exactly the same way in order to be accepted and a part of this family, like many faiths require. The Christian faith is designed to be a heartfelt conviction a love relationship with the Father and the Son. So that makes Christianity, that makes following Jesus unique and transforming. So Jesus invites his followers, those original disciples and those that were listening, and you and I today, to pray, Our Father in heaven. Calling God Father today is fairly common. But the disciples likely gasped when they heard Jesus call him Father out loud. You see, their picture of God, a picture that had been formed by their pictures, that is, by their God being a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, doesn't doesn't portray this portrait of intimacy and familiarity. Their God is the one who created the world. Their God is the one who then flooded the earth. Their God is the one who sent the plagues. Their God is the one who parted the sea, who rained down fire and brimstone, who terminated those who disobeyed him. All true. But all incomplete. So Jesus addresses this same God that they addressed, this awesome God whose name a Jew would not even allow to pass over his lips with a common word, Abba, meaning father or daddy. Did Jesus know who he was talking to? (laughs) Yes, he did. Better than anyone. But Jesus isn't diminishing his or anyone else's reverence for God. 
Jesus is not trying to diminish God's power. Jesus is simply saying God is knowable. He is personal and is indicating to his disciples that a a personal, intimate relationship with their creator and sustainer is possible. See, Jesus often spoke in the gospels of my father. Sometimes he spoke of the father. When speaking with his disciples, he sometimes said, your father. But Jesus never used our father when he was including himself along with his disciples. And that's important. Might appear subtle on the outside, but that's important. It's a distinction that Jesus makes for us in John chapter 20 in the 17th verse, where he says, go to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. Now, he could have just simply said, our father and our God, but he didn't. And the reason is simple. Jesus' relationship with his father was, is, and always will be unique and different than ours. The church confesses that we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. We confess that he is God's son by nature. We are God's children by adoption. He is God's son by right. We are God's children by grace. When Jesus gives us the right to call his father our father, he passes on his own father-son relationship to you and to me. This, don't miss it, is one of Jesus' greatest gifts to us in the Lord's Prayer. Without much fanfare, in this prayer we are adopted into the family of God. We are invited, we are encouraged, we are even commanded to pray our Father. This is an inexpressible, indescribable gift. And while the Old Testament characterizes God as like a father, Jesus now says, if you love him, he is, he is, he is your father. Sadly, the reverence of ancient Israel is often non-existent in our Western world today. We lack a sense of awe. And without a sense of awe, we yawn at the words that, make, that made the disciples gasp. And the truth is that opens some doors to some significant issues and problems any that we face today. All the way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, you may recall the story about the serpent who tempts Eve. He goes to her and says, did God really tell you you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The truth is the most effective temptations are never direct. No temptation comes upon us that simply says, You want to sin against God? You want to make him really, really angry? You want to mess up your life today? You want to mess up your life for eternity? Then just pick that apple and eat it. No temptation is successful that way. 
Instead, the serpent understands that he must subtly undermine Eve's trust in God. So he does. He goes after it. God had said, you are free to eat from any tree in this garden except one. If you eat from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you will surely die. The serpent comes along and just subtly twists those words and said, did God really say to you, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So the serpent is taking the generous words of God and making God sound like he's stingy. He slowly chips away at Eve's trust in God until he successfully gets her to take and to eat that forbidden fruit. We've heard that story before. It happens over and over and over again. But there's something else going on here that most people don't notice. You see, in Genesis 2, when Genesis 2 talks about about God, he is called Yahweh Elohim. Two words, Yahweh Elohim. We would translate that as Lord God. In Genesis 3, when the serpent decides to talk about God, the serpent just uses Elohim, just God. A title for God, an abstract title for God. And what the serpent is doing is he is dropping God's personal name, Yahweh. Like doctor instead of Doug. Like professor instead of Mary. Like sir instead of dad. The word is respectful, but it is distant and it is depersonalized. When we're intimate, the title isn't necessary. Marilyn and my kids don't call me doctor. I've tried, but... (laughs) The serpent comes in subtly and demotes God from Yahweh to simply Elohim, from Lord God, covenant God, loving God, gracious God, to just God. Interestingly... Scripture calls us far more frequently to understand who God is because it doesn't want us to forget about his love and about his grace because without that, we wouldn't consider him trustworthy. We wouldn't think he has our best interests at heart. But he tempted Eve And she took the bait. We need to remember. We need to remember God is just not almighty and all powerful. That he is not just sovereign, but he is also our father. He is Yahweh. Scripture calls us far more frequently just to remember, to remember, to remember. Far more frequently to remember than even to obey. So our praying starts and our praying ends by remembering who we're talking to, our Father in heaven. Second, remember who you are 
When Eve forgot who God was, she also lost her own identity. When Eve, then Adam, made God something less than father, they imagined themselves as something less than sons and daughters. The honor and adoration that we give to God always comes back to us. Only when we remember who God is can we realize and remember who we are. In the New Testament, Paul calls us saints. Followers of Jesus, he says, are saints. And contrary to many current definitions of that particular word, this biblical word has little or nothing to do with our competence, with our abilities, with our righteousness, and it has everything to do with the goodness of God and his grace. It doesn't mean we're good. It just means we have experienced God's goodness. When we remember who God is and who we are, then we have experienced God's goodness. Adoration. Adoration is the first word that goes with the first letter of an acronym some people use to guide their prayer, A-C-T-S. It's where we discover God's love is the defining reality of every square inch of his creation, including you and me. According to Jesus, God just longs to bless us. His predisposition toward us is graciousness. He loves to provide for all of our needs. Sadly, that reality either doesn't sink in or we forget it. Either way, not knowing, not remembering, messes up our life. Every time we pray, every time we call upon God, every time we address him as our father, we are reminded that we are completely and unconditionally loved. Third, remembering who we are to each other. When our trust in God erodes, so does our relationship with others. Adam and Eve, the scripture says, once naked and unashamed, instinctively started to cover themselves, to separate themselves, to distance themselves when they sinned, when they lost trust in God, when they forgot they were completely and unconditionally loved, and it instantly and dramatically changed their relationship with one another. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, the scandal wasn't limited to the word father. The scandal also included the three-letter word at the beginning that we know as our. It was our instead of my. This simple pronoun shift made prayer not only about our relationship with God, but also about our relationship with one another. When we forget the sacredness of our God, we forget the sacredness of one another, that we are, in fact, created in his image. We forget the sacredness of our spouse and of our children and of our parents and our coworkers and our neighbors, even our customers. And that, when we forget, allows us to and is why we treat others so poorly. When our trust with God is fractured, so is our intimacy with one another. When the followers of Jesus can't get along, that means that there is something wrong in our relationship with the Father first and foremost. 
prayer is the place where our memory returns. We forget. Prayer reminds us in the very first sentence. The simple possessive pronoun our is significant because it joins the people of God to God himself. The creature to the creator, the finite to the infinite. The hour means you and I belong to the Father in body and soul and in life and in death. It's a possessive pronoun. The hour means we are not our own. Every time we pray, we are reminded it's no longer about me. It's no longer my life. It's not about my agenda. It's not about my wants and my needs. The entire gospel is in that simple three-letter word, our. We have been bought with a price. We're here for a reason and a purpose. Second, if he is our father, he is also my father. Our includes me. I am a child of God. I am a part of his family. We never fully comprehend the implications of the privilege that Jesus offers to us when he simply says we can address the God in heaven as our father. In order for us to address God as our father, Jesus needed to go to a cross. He needed to be nailed to it. He needed to die and give his life so that we can be our and pray our Father. Third, the hour means that we have brothers and sisters. Jesus affirms that God has a family. God is the Father. All who follow Jesus are his adopted brothers and sisters. And so when we pray our Father, we are obligating ourselves to look down the row to look behind us and to look in the row in front of us to see our brothers and our sisters. We're obligated to look across the street and across town and over the world. We are obligated to love them as Christ loves them. Only in the unity of God's family can we legitimately pray our Father. And fourth, the hour changes the hour must change the way we live and the way we pray. When we pray, we are addressing the Father on behalf of the entire family. The hour indicates that we are each praying. When I pray, I pray on behalf of you. And when you pray, you pray on behalf of me and of all our brothers and sisters as we pray our together. The hour reminds us Again, that it's not about me. It's not convincing God of my agenda. It's not imploring God to meet my needs. He is my father. And prayer becomes about his mission and his kingdom and his church and his world and our neighbors. You will notice the words I and me and mine do not appear in the Lord's Prayer. They should be used sparingly in our praying as well. Prayer 
is where we remember that we are part of God's family. And then we need to remember to hallow his name. Hallowed is an old English word. It means to make holy. It means to set apart. It means to sanctify, to consecrate, to dedicate. Perhaps the closest equivalent we might have in the English is simply to honor. If Father is a reminder of our intimacy with God, hallowed is a reminder of God's distinctiveness, his uniqueness, his majesty, his sovereignty, his almightiness, everything we are not. You see, while Israel was scandalized by Jesus teaching them to pray, our Father, our world today would be scandalized if we were to teach them to say, hallowed be your name. Our world today offers God little adoration, little reverence, little awe. For the most part, our world simply ignores him and hopes he goes away. Our world has disassociated everyday life from his rule and his reign. And we need this reminder every bit as those earlier disciples needed the reminder of God's love for them. Hallowing is an active prayer. Intentionally honoring and adoring and praising God. When we move from a posture of stillness and silence, preparing to meet with God, The first thing we need to do when we come face to face with God is to honor and adore him. Just for the record, God doesn't need us to honor and adore him. Just for the record, we're not to pray this because God is insecure in any way. Just for the record, this isn't even about him. The honoring God is for us. Because by honoring God, we put God in proper relationship. We name him who he is. Our reality becomes a greater reality, and we look at the world in a different perspective. We tend to think the world is a neutral place. It's not. It's been on our screens all week. It's a place where almost always someone, something else other than Jesus is being honored and worshiped. It is a place where almost always hearts are cherishing names of accomplishments, of success, of productivity, of the approval of others, of self-interests and self-comforts and self-will. So when we pray, we are to step out of the world's realities and into the spiritual realities. We need to ask God to reorient our perspective, to give us a bigger picture, a truer picture, a spiritual picture and perspective. Hallowed be is in the passive tense. Because the truth is, we don't make God's name holy. Only God can make his name holy. Only God has the power to impact history, to make his actions known, to be holy and majestic. No human creature could possibly do what God has done and make him holy or honorable or worthy. But prayer begins 
when we acknowledge and embrace and celebrate his holiness. And we do that with our praise, with our adoration, and with our obedience. When we hallow God's name, it's not only countercultural, it becomes an act of defiance against the empty promises of this world. A defiance of our current circumstances. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas have been unjustly beaten and imprisoned. Their response? They start singing hymns and praising God. They start praying. And you want to ask, are they delusional? Have they forgot the situation and the circumstances? <laughs> no. The truth is they understand better than we God's nature and character, and they're responding with defiant adoration. You see, hallowed be your name is longing to see God's power and his presence here and now. Hallowed be your name longs for the day when God is going to step in and clean up this ugly mess. Hallowed be your name is a prayer for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done here on earth like it is in heaven. David Benner writes, it is relatively easy to meet God in moments of joy or bliss. In those situations, we correctly count ourselves blessed by God. The challenge is to believe that this is also true and to know God's presence in the midst of doubt, depression, anxiety, conflict, or failure. God is equally present in the moments we would never choose as he is in those moments we would gladly choose. When Paul and Silas sang in their jail cell, when they hallowed God's name, they brought the light of heaven into the darkness of this world, and it changed everything. That is prayer. The rabbis of Jesus' day were known to stand in silence for a full hour before they started to pray. They understood a little of God's holiness and also a little bit about the power of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, from the stillness and the quiet and the awe of our heart. We are overwhelmed with your majesty, with your sovereignty, with your power, and with the opportunity that you have given us to call you our Father. Father, we claim childhood. We claim our brothers and sisters, we claim Jesus and we're thankful to be a part of your family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.